Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are having a mega podcast to look at the EU's top jobs. After months of speculation, the European Council has finally agreed on a slate of names which it is proposing towards the European Parliament. And none of the names on it were the ones that people were expecting beforehand. The new president of the European Commission will be Ursula von der Leyen, the German defence minister. The president of the European Council will be Louis Michel, the former prime minister of Belgium. The high representative and vice president of the European Commission uh, for External Affairs would be Josep Borrell, who is the Spanish foreign minister. And the head of the European Central Bank will be Christine Lagarde. To help us make sense of how we got here, who these people are, and what it means for European foreign policy, I have an all-star cast from right across Europe, north, south, east and west. First up is Vesela Chernova, who's Deputy Director of ECFR, joining us from Sofia. Also have um, from Warsaw, Piotr Buras who's the head of our office there and a senior policy fellow. From Berlin, we have Josef Janning, who is the head of our Berlin office and a senior policy fellow. And finally, from Madrid, we have Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, who is also the head of our office (laughs) and a senior policy fellow. We're going to start with a question about what this decision tells us about the state of Europe and and how we got here. Vesta, why don't you uh, kick off the discussion? Well, I think uh, it tells us first that uh, President Macron was very successful in uh, killing the Spitzenkandidat idea. The European Parliament is still very angry about that. And I think it will probably ask for a high price uh, from the Council and the Commission for the humiliation. Secondly, there has been a very clear rejection of Eastern Europe's uh, ambitions in uh, distributing the job. One can, of course, say that it was also the fault of the Central and Eastern Europeans who were very much uh, united in saying no to Franz Timmermans but did not have a good enough uh, suggestion uh, for a name themselves. And so they didn't get anything. Of course, uh, the Council also um, got... uh, French-speaking liberal uh, on top of that, on top of the council, and uh, a French uh, head of the central bank, which also points in the direction of uh, a win for Macron. But uh, not, you know, not only that, but but Borrell and um, and von der Leyen also all speak French, so it's a it's an entirely francophone um, lineup. Yes, maybe we should change our working language as well. <laughs> The question, I think, is how do we bridge uh, uh, this gap? Uh, My worry is that uh, the gap between uh, Central and Eastern Europe and Old Europe uh, is going to grow. And we have a bunch of very important things to grapple with. uh, Things like uh, migration, like the next budget of the European Union, but also foreign and security policy for all of them. Uh, there, there is a big need for a united European voice. 
So, uh, Piotr, we just heard from Vesla that this is a humiliation of Central and Eastern Europe. You're sitting in, in the biggest country in Central and Eastern Europe. How's it being spun in Warsaw, what's happened now? You know, the, the, the Polish the Polish government uh, declared a f- uh, total victory uh, after the um, EU summit and after the nomination of um, von der Leyen uh, for the post of the president of the EU commission. Uh, so it seems it's, it, it, as if, at least for the Polish government and the other V4 governments, it was much more important to prevent uh, Franz Timmermans as the head of the commission than to promote a joint candidate for any of the most important positions. So I think there is, at the moment at least, when it comes to the ruling elite, there is no feeling of defeat, there is no feeling of uh, of humiliation, humiliation rather, it's, uh, it's a pride of, of uh, having achieved, as the Prime Minister Morawiecki said, all goals Poland had at the EU uh, summit. But but I think indeed it, it, it's, uh, it was a Pyrrhus uh, victory in uh, two dimensions. The one is that uh, the lack of uh, the representatives of the region in the leading positions is, is significant and it's a significant problem for the EU, for the cohesion of the EU in the, in the future. But also w- w- within the logics of the V4 countries, I think uh, it is not a victory if uh, von der Leyen is not a the populist who would close her eyes um, on the violations of the rule of law in Central Eastern Europe or in other countries. And uh, Franz Timmermans would remain part of the, an important uh, part of the, of the EU Commission, as it seems, uh, and other leading commissioners will probably have also quite a tough stance on the rule of law issues. So it's not, uh, as I said, a victory even within the logics of the, of the Polish or other governments. But I think the, this is not the end of this process of, of the key nominations in the in the new EU institutional setup, because we will also have after the 15th of July and after the voting in the parliament on the uh, nomination of von der Leyen, we will have uh, the whole round of discussions about uh, and the process of nominations of the of the commissioners and and of course if Poland or any other. Central Eastern European country got um, an important portfolio in the new commission, like, for example, the Commission of the Internal Market or, or Energy Commissioner, the region could still say that maybe it's not a full success, but it's uh, it's a significant achievement because these w- will be the most important portfolios in the new commission. So, Josef, one of the weirdest things about this whole process is that you have this German candidate for president of the European Commission. The one government that didn't vote for her was the German government, her own government, her own chancellor. And um, looking at the coverage of it afterwards, most of the negative coverage and opposition seems to be within Germany. Can you explain, A, why that is, and B, whether you think that the opposition is so strong that it might still end up blowing this deal up? Well, to begin with the last point, Mark, uh, I don't think that this may, will make a case for the breakup of the coalition, even though, you know, you hear some actors um, um, playing with that option. Uh, I think it's just not strong enough. But what it says, it's there is a there is a major rift uh, in the coalition. The, the Social Democrats 
are actually not attacking so much von der Leyen. That's that what they they do out of party political purposes. That's sort of the the usual domestic policy infight. But they are attacking Merkel. They are attacking sort of her monopoly uh, over the negotiations uh, in Brussels. And I think that points to a sort of an underlying structural rift that is whenever uh, a governing coalition is is not doing well, then this 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 the fact that that Germany is, is mostly represented or in all of the decisive moments represented uh, in on the European level by the chancellor alone is something that the other coalition partner finds hard to swallow and particularly at this time. So maybe we can now shift to the to the candidates. It'd be great to I mean, obviously, we're all most interested in, in EU foreign policy. It's not just going to be about the, the EUHR. Hopefully, the president of the European Council and the president of the Commission uh, are, are involved in that. Uh, it'd be great to hear, Josef, from, from you about von der Leyen. But maybe we could start with, with Borrell to show our professional defamation um, and our interest in, in the foreign policy machinery. Nacho, how is the whole package seen in Spain? What do we know about Borrell? Uh, what kind of um, EU foreign policy could come out of this? Well, here the Spanish government has been playing in two two levels uh, at the same time. Uh, on the one hand, President Sanchez has been playing the role of um, the leader of the European Socialists, and on that, on that front, he set uh, himself very ambitious goals in terms of making sure that things would be done in a different way compared to other occasions, that is uh, understanding that the results of the European elections meant the end of the hegemony of the um, European Popular Party and that the traditional division of labor by which automatically after the elections it was taken for granted that the conservatives would get the presidency of the commission and then it would tell the others what were the posts and the positions that they were getting. The Spanish socialists and Pedro Sanchez wanted to put an end to this and wanted to play a bit with the idea that this time was going to be different, that the socialists together with the liberals and even together with the Greens could effectively challenge the popular European Popular Party in order to try and get someone who was not necessarily the Spitzenkandidaten or Manfred Weber as president of the commission. That being said, Nacho, though, before you go on, I mean, it does look a bit like what happened last time. Last time, the EPP got the president of the commission and the socialists ended up with the high representative and half of the parliament. And this time it seems to be more or less the same uh, <laughs> the same result. Yeah, exactly. So, so on, on that on that count, Sanchez, uh, the analysis done here in Spain, but also by the European socialists, is that the socialists have lost because they've tried to do something different, but they ended up uh, signing up to the same thing that they got last time. And there is a there is a, the, the focus here is placed on Macron. Uh, to the extent to which Macron has been playing ideological in a sense that he wanted to build up this coalition of socialists and liberals, but in the last minute he played French and, and therefore went to secure a position for Lagarde, knowing that um, his party, to, to the extent to which the Liberal Party is his party, was only third in the... In the but, but they also got the European Council, which is pretty incredible. I mean, why did the socialist group not go for the European Council? 
Yeah, well, that's 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 the point that uh, I think there was a bit of a miscalculation in terms of the uh, strength which uh, which the socialists thought that they could probably have in 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 terms of challenging the the commission, and then the socialists and especially Pedro Sanchez, they're very pro-European and probably they regret that they have contributed to destroy the Spitzenkandidat system without any good explanation of having got at least uh, something uh, substantial in return, right? So uh, so on that account, as a socialist leader, Sanchez uh, is not uh, very triumphant after after this round of uh, of job uh, selections. Contrary, but but on the contrary, as a as a Spaniard and as a Spanish leader, there's been long talk that Spain should be back to European politics. That uh, the the period in which Rajoy and Rapatero were absent of European politics due to both their personalities, but also the financial crisis and the economic crisis in Spain, this is over. And, and the fact that Borrell has been appointed high rep, even if it's what the socialists uh, usually get in these, in these negotiations, is, of course, seen with a lot of optimism in, in Spain. And it's very good news um, because uh, it's, you have to go back to Solana uh, and Almunia to find uh, someone as relevant as, as, as Borrell will be in the European institutions. So do you want to tell us a, a little bit more about him and then we'll hear from Josef about von der Leyen and then we can talk a bit about what they're all going to do. But tell us a bit about Borrell because you've known him for a long time. In fact, he, he's been very close to ECFR for a while. So we, we've all met him quite a few times. I mean, Borrell um, is, uh, has been in politics or started in politics with the first socialist government under Felipe González in 1982 as, as Secretary of State for, for the Treasury and Finance. Uh, he's a very classic social democrat uh, advocating for redistribution, social policies, uh, equality. So on the domestic political front, he's been always slightly left to the mainstream of the socialists who've been leaning more to the tent, to the center and kind of third way policy, uh, politics and, and policies. So he's kind of the, on the left of the socialist party, very well known for his openly anti austerity and anti ordo liberalism, uh, economic policies, which probably, uh, diminished, uh, his chances for getting an economic portfolio in this European Commission. So uh, he challenged the establishment of the party uh, when Felipe González left and, and, and became the Secretary General of the Socialists and candidate to the presidency of the government in 1997. But, uh, but then he had to resign and went to play European politics, as you know, as president of the European Parliament. And he, he defeated Bronislav Geremek, um for that for that job. Yeah. And, and then um, he came back to uh, Spanish politics after his tenure in the European Parliament and a brief stint as president of the European University Institute in Florence, where, where he met uh, a lot of resistance from, from the academy because probably his style, uh, a bit of a too imperative and command and control when it comes to dealing with academics in Florence who were not quite used to, to having a, a, a president with executive powers, which is probably what Borrell aimed at uh, in Florence, but this backfired and he resigned from there. And then, you know, he, he became of a hero of the socialist uh, militants when again in Spain he challenged the establishment 
establishment of the party and, and sided with Pedro Sánchez in questioning the, the turn to the center of that the Socialist Party was doing in order to abstain and let Rajoy be president of the government. So he's been consistently on the left of the party, anti-establishment and, and very progressive uh, in terms of economic policies. And as a foreign minister, we must say that he's been quite open, vocal, not at all an orthodox foreign minister. He says things. He pushes verbally uh, to the limit on countries and issues. He's famously recently said that Trump was a cowboy pulling out his gun in Venezuela before asking. He's um, uh, faced an incident with the Russian foreign ministry because he described Russia as an enemy and the Spanish ambassador was called to consultations. He has also said that, uh, that China is a strategic rival, which is the language uh, which in Brussels we use to describe uh, enemies also or, or, or adversaries. So, so, you know, he's not a career diplomat and he doesn't want to play this role. So let us see, and this is what is, what will be more intriguing to which extent he's very free and detached from traditional diplomatic cliches style will apply the minute he steps into a gigantic bureaucracy bureaucracy like uh, like the European Commission and the European External Action Service. So it's going to require a deep transformation probably of himself, known to be very individualistic and, and very close to detail uh, and very much in wanting to be in control of things personally to try and, and, and steer a team as huge as the EAS and learn probably to delegate and deputize and, and so on. So it's, quite, it's going to be quite a challenge for and a transformation for him. Okay, well, that's uh, that's very interesting. And I, maybe just to add before we go to von der Leyen, um, that we, you know, it, it seems also he wants to change the nature of the role and do a bit less crisis tourism than Federica Mogherini has done and try and work more on developing common European strategies and empowering the member states rather than just being a, a character of, 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 of the European Commission. Yeah, um, I mean... I- He's not probably, uh, I mean, he's not an intellectual and he doesn't want to consider himself as an intellectual, but he likes, he's a good planner. Uh, as an engineer, aeronautical engineer, he wants to make sure that you know where you start, where you end, and that you have adequate, uh, adequately planned for your, for your trip. So he's quite analytical and it's not necessarily that he may resist crisis making because of course you know he probably understands that uh, that you're required when there is a crisis it's probably the more bureaucratic bilateral multilateral symmetry more the routine stuff that has kept Mogherini and Ashton outside Brussels what he wants to cut in order to be a more effective chair of of his colleagues, he's uh, he's seen the council working from his seat as Spanish foreign minister, and has developed a kind of frustration. We just uh, we know we have we have an interview in English with him on our website, in which he described the, the, the council on foreign affairs as the place where all, all the all the wounds of, uh, of of the humanity show up, and then you grade whether you want to condemn, lament, regret. Or, 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 you know, or discuss things. So he, he really wants probably to the, the, the council to have a more active role and he himself has a more active role as chair of that council in order to make sure that it works effectively 
he was very frustrated with Venezuela in terms of how bureaucratic, non-effective, cumbersome and procedural the EU was there. Talking about bureaucratic, cumbersome and procedural organisations, um, von der Leyen has been <laughs> head of the German Ministry of Defence for, for almost, I think, almost a record uh, number of years. Um, Josef, do you want to tell us a bit about her and what we can, should expect from her as president of the Commission? Yes, sure, Mark. Uh, a quick portrait. Ursula von der Leyen, um, 60 years of age, now um, a physician by training, mother of seven, daughter of uh, the late Ernst Albrecht, who was uh, in his younger years um, also uh, working in Brussels for the uh, European community at the time. That's why she was um, uh, born and, and there and, and went to school, at least, I, I think, for a few years uh, in Brussels. Uh, like yourself, Mark. Indeed. Um, and so you have something in common already. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, she, uh, uh, was the Prime Minister of, of Saxony, which is also her political home for, for a number of years. Ursula von der Leyen entered politics only in 1990. You know, she um, um, is sort of a, not the classical political career. And also she's not the your usual politician. You know, in the sense that she likes to to shake as many hands as possible, clap as many shoulders as available, kiss as many babies or uh, other people uh, as would want to be kissed by her. She usually is very controlled. She uh, keeps a certain distance. She's uh, uh, most of the time very focused. She is not seen in many you know, social or societal uh, gatherings because uh, her uh, work week is very structured because she wants to reserve time for her fairly large family and, and the off-peaks. And uh, she has not, you know, she's not the security wonk that then has risen to the Minister of Defense position. She uh, actually engaged in, in social affairs, uh, uh, domestic uh, policy, internal policy, education, family matters, uh, women's issues. Uh, she was um, her first job as in the federal government was uh, minister of family, youth, women. You know, and uh, uh, she was pretty successful uh, in, in that job because she actually put the women's equality issue uh, on the agenda. And she pushed through a number of changes that were mostly rejected inside her own party. Uh, then she continued as minister of labor uh, and was equally successful because uh, she was in Merkel's grand coalition. She was actually able to do things that you would not necessarily have expected from a traditional uh, Christian Democrat uh, politician. Of course, uh, Ministry of Defense, when she was appointed Minister of Defense, this was seen as the ultimate test of her readiness for chancellorship. Now, she was always very close to Merkel. And for some time, she was considered to be almost sort of the natural successor should Angela Merkel at some point uh, resign or or not uh, run for the chancellorship again? And so this this uh, more difficult and controversial and risky job in the MOD was seen as sort of the the litmus test. Would she do that well? She would also be uh, eligible for the chancellorship. It happened to her like it happened to so many defense ministers in the in, in German politics is that this is an extremely difficult job. It's much easier to uh, fall over something happening in the job than 
to become the most popular politician, which is usually reserved for the foreign minister. Because the foreign minister is responsible for, for peace, and the defense minister is responsible for preventing war. You know? And uh, so, so this is how also the, the public reputation of the ministers fall. She is... So Brussels is her, it was her consolation prize. Um, when she when she was seen to fail in the um, well, I think she, I think Brussels actually has been on her mind for a number of years, uh, and actually her name has been on some lists for every job in Brussels, head of NATO and all the other kind of uh, jobs. Well, yeah, but, but also also uh, she could have been a German commissioner. No, uh, I think that uh, would also be of her liking. Personally, she is a committed and I believe a convinced European federalist in the German sense. No, uh, not in the British sense of federalism uh, being a synonym for centralism, but federalism in the German sense of advocating a strong Europe, but a Europe that is in the balance, that, that follows the subsidiarity principle. Now, she wants more Europe uh, on some of the critical issues, including uh, Europe's role in the world, uh, uh, European security. But we should not expect her presidency, should she be confirmed, uh, to be uh, security dominated. She will pursue a wider agenda because also she uh, herself has a wider agenda. Just to illustrate that with one example, when she was new to the defense ministry, one of the early things that she did was to launch an initiative to improve child care for uh, kids of soldiers. You know, which then a lot of people made fun of her because they say, well, obviously, you know, she's the former minister for youth and family and women. And now when she becomes defense minister, it's kindergarten that she cares about. But, you know, she is uh, uh, that's misreading her. She's very um, uh, she's very, uh, I say, uh, busy. You know, she is she she works hard and she gets into the dossiers thoroughly and deeply, and I would expect that she will do the same as president of the commission and try to to, to sort of uh, represent the broad range of issues that she will be responsible for. So, Vesa and Piotr, this is one of the hardest jobs in the world, trying to come up with a European foreign policy out of the, the kind of divided tribes of, of uh, the EU. Juncker has has really struggled and complained a lot about how divided the EU is at the moment. What advice would the two of you give to von der Leyen and to Borrell as they both grapple with the challenge of getting confirmed by the European Parliament, but then more importantly, how can they avoid some of the mistakes of their predecessors and uh, do a better job of, of forging a common European foreign policy? I would say Borrell is expected to have two types of issues. One is what was already mentioned, uh, the turning the Foreign Affairs Council in, into something which is intellectually more challenging and something which makes decisions that matter and not just laments and condemns. And there it will be very important for him to really try and strike coalitions which are which go beyond the usual coalitions meaning on issues like you know uh, security or russia or the us he will have to be very inventive secondly there will be a couple of issues where people will have doubts about his i would not say 
his credibility, but maybe his credentials. Uh, for instance, the Balkans being uh, him coming from a country which is a non-recognizer uh, of Kosovo. It will be important for him to have really a very clear strategy from the very start, uh, how he would handle that issue and to be able to articulate it, be it get a special envoy for the region or get a uh, kind of a time plan for uh, the dialogue uh, and so on. Especially on uh, issues like Russia, uh, security and so on, um, Central and Eastern Europe uh, will be looking at him, uh, at him with a lot of, um, I would say, doubt at the beginning. So I think it will be very important for him to go, you know, beyond his zone of, com of comfort, uh, especially given the situation Europe is in, in terms of divisions. So it's clear that he will be very capable in dealing with, you know, Africa, in dealing with uh, uh, the MENA region, but uh, he will have to make the effort and go beyond that. And Piotr, you've been watching um, von der Leyen for a long time. You're a long correspondent um, for Gazeta Wyborcza in, 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 in Berlin. Have you got any tips for her on how she can win over um, Central and Eastern Europe um, and heal some of the divisions which have stopped the European Union from, from functioning in, the, in recent years? You know, I think von der Leyen has a good understanding of what's going on in Central Eastern Europe, and he, she has a certain sensitivity for, or a certain understanding for the sensitivities of of the of the region, and she she's her record in uh, when it comes to her activities as a defense minister of Germany. Uh, for example, uh, in the framework of the strengthening of the NATO of, uh, eastern flank is is very good, and uh, so she she will start if she's of course if she's accepted by the parliament, she will start her job with a certain credit in in Central Eastern Europe, and this is perhaps not uh, an accident that uh, the, the 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 four countries supported her her candidacy, despite being German, despite uh, you know all these uh, problems, uh, the especially the Polish government has with Berlin, but um, but I think in, in general both von der Leyen and and Borrell, but perhaps even more Borrell, will have to very much uh, indeed focus on on forging. Um, coalitions and forging consensus within the European Union, and not so much to be, you know, hyperactive uh, on the international arena. I think that was the, one of the criticisms about um, Mogherini was that um, she got at some point a little bit detached from from the EU's mainstream and uh, and basically followed her own foreign policy line without taking into consideration the positions of the EU member states. And I think. Even if this criticism might be uh, exaggerated, I think this is it will be indeed a very important function of the of the high representative to uh, to forge and to work on a consensus within the European Union 
because uh, there will be many issues and there are many issues already where, where the EU is, uh, is quite divided and, and this is of course the, the relations with the US, this is the Iran, Iran question, this is also China and, uh, and Russia and many others. So, so I think uh, our, our, my advice would be to, to be, to be perhaps not over ambitious when it comes to the uh, role um, of the high representative and the role of the president of the commission in the internal international affairs when it comes to representation of the EU and and pursuing uh, some very particular interests and and uh, positions but but rather to focus on the EU internally and, and how to make sure that the, the EU member states are uh, behind the institutions okay so <clears throat> That I think is a is a very useful uh, bit of advice to end on. We have one thing left on this um, podcast to do, which is our um, bookshelf segment. And I was wondering whether we could have a a special bookshelf segment now. I haven't warned any of you about it, so hopefully you'll play along with this. But um, let's why don't we recommend books for for the new uh, leadership team and and talk to them about um, what they should take with them if the, as they go off for the summer and prepare for their new roles ahead. Um, to give you a bit of time to think about it, I'll maybe start with my recommendation, which is uh, maybe a slightly strange one, but it's an article from the American Interest from 2008, 11 years ago, by Wes Mitchell, who recently stepped down as the Assistant Secretary for Europe in the State Department, and it's called Perhapsburg. And in this article, he talks about the, the in a very prescient way, in fact, using quite a lot of ECFR research at the time, that the biggest uh, challenge for, for Europe is, um, is not the ones that people expected. He says it's neither the challenge of strategic retrenchment to make room for a great power Europe, nor the challenge of patiently coaxing uh, a Swiss Europe out of its strategic shell but of preventing a strategically sandwiched Habsburgian Europe from becoming a de facto strategic appendage of, of the other great powers. And he talks about how the biggest danger for Europe is, is that it will be like the old um, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, kind of ripped about, apart by, the, um, by the, the, the great powers on its fringes. Um, who wants to go next? Hi, Mark. This is Nacho. Well, I think there are... Uh, and the, the two things maybe I would take for, I would recommend uh, uh, EU leaders, especially foreign policy, to take for this summer would be in a companion to read first Fukuyama's uh, identity, you know, to try and explain what what is happening at home in our societies. And then John Marsheimer's uh, The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities, you know, because if you put these two things together, it's really about the world out there. They might decide they don't want to do the jobs anymore if they. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they will know in which circumstances they uh, they will have to do their job. Yeah. <laughs> um, who wants to go next? Well, I can go next, uh, Piotr. Uh, I think you know I have two books on my shelf which I think are definitely worth reading. I will probably read them within the next few weeks. One is the, the Luke Lars new book, Alarmus and, um, and Excursions. Uh, apparently, one of the best books about the current shape of the European integration and the EU policy making. And I, I think that's at the 
at the beginning of the new term of the institution, it's it's, it's definitely uh, reading. And the second one is uh, by Parakana, the future is uh, uh, which widen a little bit our perspective on the uh, on the on the global affairs beyond these uh, beyond what we have just discussed this uh, internal boring and mundane personal personal stuff um, within the EU. so I think these two books uh, are definitely good read for the summer great who, who wants to go next maybe I can, well, I do, I can go next <laughs> Sure. Yes, okay. Uh, go ahead. Joseph, no. No, no, no. No, Joseph, you, you, you will go recommend something it's... serious, which is which is not what I'll do. I, I'll <laughs> recommend the novel. Me, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, all right. then I go first. You know, I, I have two recommendations. One is for the visitors that would come by in her office for books you have to 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 be lying on your table. I would recommend that she keeps an edition of uh, uh, German uh, philosophy about Europe from Immanuel Kant to uh, Jürgen Habermas on her desk, but uh, should not spoil as her As a coffee summer. table book, you mean? Yes, as a coffee table book. You know, just so that people can see that she is, she is sort of refreshing the deepest uh, German thinking about the future of the world in Europe. And uh, for something light, you know, for the lack of a, a nice love story or some other heartwarming thing, I would recommend uh, for her to uh, to take to the beach um, a, a copy of Robert Manasseh's book, Die Hauptstadt. Not because I think that Manasseh uh, has really understood everything about the EU, but his book is interesting because it, it, it plays in Brussels and is about uh, the EU not being so bad and so uh, technocratic, bureaucratic, uh, lifeless uh, that it is often portrayed. So she will um, probably laugh on a number of occasions um, and and sort of relax for a moment before she will be totally consumed by the job. Okay. So Vesla, last word to you. Okay. My re- serious recommendation is to read our collection on Europe's strategic sovereignty and how Europe can regain the capacity to act. I think this would be a very good start for anyone who wants to get fresh ideas uh, rather than try to to do better with old ones. And my second recommendation is for a novel, which is actually written by uh, a friend of ours, uh, I believe, Alexandro Sianis, who is uh, somebody who serves in the European Union bureaucracy and turned out to be a very good novel writer. It's called Chimera, and it's a novel which tells uh, the story of uh, people who try to fight the anti-cosmopolitan movement. And this is a global force of evil, which is destroying the world as we know it. So it's an entertaining, but also uh, uh, a book that that makes you think that we may be on the verge uh, of uh, things going really sour and we can still do something about it. Great. Fantastic. So let's hope they uh, they take all these things along to the beach as they prepare for their new big roles. Um, and I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast as well. If you have, 
you better let your friends and acquaintances and family know about it by tweeting on your uh, or writing on your social media pages or ours. Um, and above all, hopefully by giving us a, a good rating or review on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on. But for now, from Vesla Chanova, Piotr Buras, Josef Janning and Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, as well as myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher on ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenpoich, and he's editing it as well this week. And if you want links to all the things that we've mentioned, you should head to our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts.